It is May 30th, 1929. The streets of London are buzzing with celebration and with protest as the flappers' election gets underway. This is the first national election in which women will have equal suffrage with men. And due to World War I, women will have the majority vote. The trauma of the First World War is fading and the threat of the second is a still easily ignored whisper. A few blocks away from the crowds gathered in Hyde Park, in the Bohemian neighborhood of Bloomsbury, a woman is at this very moment finishing what would become arguably one of the most important feminist texts of all time. A cornerstone of feminist philosophy that continues to be relevant and influential almost a century later. Hello, you are listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist philosophy, history, and writing. In this episode, we are exploring A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, the renowned modernist writer, who is equally well known for her writing as for her liberal lifestyle. In the show notes, you can find links and bios to the names and events referenced in this podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, please donate using the Buy Me a Coffee link. It's in the show notes and on the Feral Culture Lab website. All proceeds help me hire voice actors for the series and help me pay for the costs of production. The excerpts in this episode are being read by voice actor Fiona Thrale. Born in London in 1882 to an upper middle class family, Virginia Woolf certainly had privilege, but was limited to an informal home education. Her youth was marked by family tragedies and her own mental health issues. After the death of her mother, Woolf was able to attend King's College, and, encouraged by her father, she pursued writing professionally. By 1912, she had married Leonard Woolf, and they had started their own publishing company, Hogarth Press. Wolfe had also joined a tight-knit group of writers, academics, and artists who became known as the Bloomsbury Group, friends who championed each other's works and openly shared intimate relationships. Members included the painter Vanessa Bell, writer E.M. Forster, the economist John Maynard Keynes, as well as Virginia's husband, Leonard Wolfe. By 1928, the year before the Flappers' election, Wolfe had been asked to speak at Cambridge on the topic of women and fiction. Despite the lack of existing research and references, Wolfe had much to say. Her address to the students was edited down in the service of brevity, but here she sits now, revising the speech for publication under the title, A Room of One's Own. When you asked me to speak about women and fiction, I sat down on the banks of a river and began to wonder what the words meant. They might mean simply a few remarks about Fanny Burney, a few more about Jane Austen, a tribute to the Brontes, and a sketch of Haworth Parsonage under snow, some witticisms, if possible, about Miss Mitford, a respectful allusion to George Eliot, a reference to Mrs Gaskell, and one would have done. But at second sight... The words seemed not so simple. The title Women and Fiction might mean, and you may have meant it to mean, women and what they are like, or it might mean women and the fiction that they write, 
Or it might mean women and the fiction that is written about them. Or it might mean that somehow all three are inextricably mixed together and you want me to consider them in that light. But when I began to consider the subject in this last way, which seemed to me the most interesting, I soon saw that it had one fatal drawback. I should never be able to come to a conclusion. I should never be able to fulfil what is, I understand, the first duty of a lecturer, to hand you, after an hour's discourse, a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. All I could do was offer you an opinion about one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. There have been criticisms of Wolfe's argument about the need for money and a room of one's own, particularly by underrepresented writers who have been denied the privileges that Wolfe had. And there is obviously truth in it. There have been writers, artists, and others who, despite great hardship, have produced remarkable work. There is much awareness of privilege in contemporary culture, and of course it's a good thing, but I think rather than considering the opportunity to have a voice as a privilege for some, it could be seen as a right for anyone. How much richer will our world be when the works of women from all over the world, from all different backgrounds, races, and cultures, are heard and respected equally with the likes of Plato, Dickens, or Shakespeare? Those writers are not necessarily better. We have just been taught that they are the benchmark. In defense of Wolfe, throughout A Room of One's Own, she makes it clear that her own success is due to her privilege and to a lucky inheritance. I did not understand her point to be that women cannot write without money and a room of their own, but rather that women must be allowed access to an independent living and a space that they control in order for women to significantly contribute to literature, though the same could be said for any endeavour. I read A Room of One's Own as a clearly laid out argument for how historically being denied access to liberty was the reason women had not contributed materially to the vast literary legacy of humanity. It was disappointing not to have brought back in the evening some important statement, some authentic fact. Women are poorer than men because this or that. Perhaps now it would be better to give up seeking for the truth and receiving on one's head an avalanche of opinion hot as lava, discoloured as dishwater. It would be better to draw the curtains, to shut out distractions, to light the lamp, to narrow the inquiry and to ask the historian, who records not opinions but facts, to describe under what conditions women lived, not throughout the ages, but in England, say, in the time of Elizabeth. For it is a perennial puzzle why no woman wrote a word of that extraordinary literature when every other man, it seemed, was capable of song or sonnet. What were the conditions in which women lived, I asked myself, for fiction, imaginative work, that is, is not dropped like a pebble upon the ground, as science may be. Fiction is like a spider's web, attached ever so lightly, perhaps, but still attached to life at all four corners. Often the attachment is scarcely perceptible. Shakespeare's plays, for instance, seem to hang there complete by themselves. 
But when the web is pulled askew, hooked up at the edge, torn in the middle, one remembers that these webs are not spun in mid-air by incorporeal creatures, but are the work of suffering human beings and are attached to grossly material things like health and money and the houses we live in. I think Wolf eloquently illustrates how the boys' club, the patriarchy, has excluded women from education, the economy and politics by limiting the sphere of influence to the home. This confinement and lack of education has made it difficult, if not impossible, to contribute to society, literature and culture in any material way. I went, therefore, to the shelf where the histories stand and took down one of the latest, Professor Trevelyan's History of England. Once more I looked up women, found position of, and turned to the pages indicated. Wife-beating, I read, was a recognised right of man and was practised without shame by high as well as low. Similarly, the historian goes on, the daughter who refused to marry the gentleman of her parents' choice was liable to be locked up, beaten and flung about the room without any shock being inflicted on public opinion. Marriage was not an affair of personal affection, but of family avarice, particularly in the chivalrous upper classes. Betrothal often took place while one or both of the parties was in the cradle, and marriage when they were scarcely out of the nurse's charge. That was about 1470, soon after Chaucer's time. The next reference to the position of women is some two hundred years later, in the time of the Stuarts. It was still the exception for women of the upper and middle class to choose their own husbands, and when the husband had been assigned, he was lord and master, so far at least as law and custom could make him. Yet even so, Professor Trevelyan concludes, Neither Shakespeare's women, nor those of authentic 17th-century memoirs, like the Vernies and the Hutchinsons, seem wanting in personality and character. Certainly, if we consider it, Cleopatra must have had a way with her. Lady Macbeth, one would suppose, had a will of her own. Rosalind, one might conclude, was an attractive girl. Professor Trevelyan is speaking no more than the truth when he remarks that Shakespeare's women do not seem wanting in personality and character. Not being a historian, one might go even further and say that women have burnt like beacons in all the works of all the poets from the beginning of time. Clytemnestra, Antigone, Cleopatra, Lady Macbeth, Phaedra, Cressida, Rosalind, Desdemona, the Duchess of Malfi, among the dramatists. Then, among the prose writers, Millamont, Clarissa, Becky Sharp, Anna Karenina, Emma Bovary, Madame de Guermont, the names flock to mind. Nor do they recall women lacking in personality and character. Indeed, if woman had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, infinitely beautiful and hideous in the extreme. As great as a man, some think even greater. But this is woman in fiction. 
In fact, as Professor Trevelyan points out, she was locked up, beaten and flung about the room. A very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words, some of the most profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could hardly read, could scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. At the time of Virginia Woolf's address to the colleges, she was deeply involved in a passionate relationship with writer and aristocrat Vita Sackville-West. Their affair was not just sexual. If Sackville-West is to be believed, it was barely sexual at all. But it was erotic, romantic, and inspiring to the both of them. During their decade-long relationship, they both wrote their best works, including, for Woolf, Orlando, called The Longest and Most Charming Love Letter in History. Vita was the more popular writer. It wasn't until after Wolfe's death that her writing caught hold and her reputation sealed as one of the finest writers in the English language. If you are interested in reading more about the writers in the She Speaks Volumes series, please subscribe to the Feral Culture Lab newsletter, a monthly email that has short articles on the writers featured in the She Speaks Volumes series, as well as updates on upcoming episodes and productions from Feral Culture Lab. Occasionally, an individual woman is mentioned, an Elizabeth or a Mary, a queen or a great lady, but by no possible means could middle-class women, with nothing but brains and character at their command, have taken part in any one of the great movements which, brought together, constitute the historian's view of the past. Nor shall we find her in collection of anecdotes. Aubrey hardly mentions her, she never writes her own life and scarcely keeps a diary. There are only a handful of her letters in existence. She left no plays or poems by which we can judge her. What one wants, I thought, and why does not some brilliant student at Newnham or Girton supply it, is a mass of information. At what age did she marry? How many children had she as a rule? What was her house like? Had she a room to herself? Did she do the cooking? Would she be likely to have a servant? All these facts lie somewhere, presumably in parish registers and account books. The life of the average Elizabethan woman must be scattered about somewhere. Could one collect it and make a book of it? It would be ambitious beyond my daring, I thought, looking about the shelves for books that were not there, to suggest to the students of those famous colleges that they should rewrite history, though I own that it often seems a little queer as it is, unreal, lopsided. But why should they not add a supplement to history, calling it, of course, by some inconspicuous name, so that women might figure there without impropriety? for one often catches a glimpse of them in the lives of the great, whisking away into the background, concealing, I sometimes think, 
a wink, a laugh, perhaps a tear. And after all, we have lives enough of Jane Austen. It scarcely seems necessary to consider again the influence of the tragedies of Joanna Bailey upon the poetry of Edgar Allan Poe. As for myself, I should not mind if the homes and haunts of Mary Russell Mitford were closed to the public for a century at least. But what I find deplorable, I continued, looking about the bookshelves again, is that nothing is known about women before the 18th century. I have no model in my mind to turn about this way and that. Here am I asking why women did not write poetry in the Elizabethan age, and I am not sure how they were educated, whether they were taught to write, whether they had sitting-rooms to themselves, how many women had children before they were twenty-one, what, in short, they did from eight in the morning till eight at night. They had no money, evidently. According to Professor Trevelyan, they were married whether they liked it or not before they were out of the nursery, at fifteen or sixteen, very likely. It would have been extremely odd, even upon this showing, had one of them suddenly written the plays of Shakespeare, I concluded, and I thought of that old gentleman, who is dead now but was a bishop, I think, who declared that it was impossible for any woman, past, present or to come, to have the genius of Shakespeare. He wrote to the papers about it. He also told a lady who applied to him for information that cats do not, as a matter of fact, go to heaven, though they have, he added, souls of a sort. How much thinking those old gentlemen used to save one! How the borders of ignorance shrank back at their approach! Cats do not go to heaven! Women cannot write the plays of Shakespeare! A room of one's own is a cornerstone of feminist philosophy. First and foremost, Judah Wolf's way with language and her clarity of thought, but also because it lays out in no uncertain terms the means and manner by which women have been kept in servitude. The problem with servitude and exclusion is not just the outrage of the condition itself, but that being denied education, a voice, and participation in the running of society becomes systemic. It also erases the history of the women who did contribute, as there is no means by which to preserve them or pass them down, let alone allow them to inform our culture. We are where we are today because until recently women have been excluded. But that does not mean that women never wrote or never contributed. There are works by women that survive today. Sappho, Christine de Pizan, Tulia de Aragona, Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, to name a few. And that is the purpose of She Speaks Volumes, to explore something of the history and culture unique to women. I told you, in the course of this paper, that Shakespeare had a sister. But do not look for her in Sir Sidney Lee's Life of the Poet. She died young. Alas, she never wrote a word. She lies buried where the omnibuses now stop, opposite the Elephant and Castle. Now my belief is that this poet who never wrote a word and was buried at the crossroads, still lives. She lives in you and in me, and in many other women who are not here tonight, for they are washing up the dishes and putting the children to bed. But she lives. For great poets do not die. 
They are continuing presences. They need only the opportunity to walk among us in the flesh. This opportunity, as I think, it is now coming within your power to give her. For my belief is that if we live another century or so, I am talking of the common life, which is the real life, and not of the little separate lives which we live as individuals, and have 500 a year each of us, and rooms of our own. If we have the habit of freedom, and the courage to write exactly what we think, if we escape a little from the common sitting room, and see human beings not always in their relation to each other, but in relation to reality, and the sky too, and the trees, or whatever it may be in themselves, if we look past Milton's bogey, for no human being should shut out the view, if we face the fact, for it is a fact, that there is no arm to cling to, but that we go alone, and that our relation is to the world of reality, and not only to the world of men and women, then the opportunity will come and the dead poet who was Shakespeare's sister will put on the body which she has so often laid down, drawing her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners, as her brother did before her, she will be born. As for her coming without that preparation, without that effort on our part, without that determination that when she is born again, she shall find it possible to live and write her poetry. That we cannot expect, for that would be impossible. But I maintain that she would come if we worked for her, and that so to work even in poverty and obscurity, is worthwhile. I love that passage. It makes me shiver to think that we are the women that Wolf predicted. Here we are, and it is our duty, our responsibility to write, to create, to vote, to earn money, to contribute to human culture by whichever means we can. At the other end of season one of She Speaks Volumes, in episode eight, I am covering another later essay by Virginia Woolf, Three Guineas. Three Guineas was written 10 years after A Room of One's Own, and as Europe is on the brink of World War II. After Woolf receives a donation request with the question, how can women help avoid war? Woolf responds with a stunning essay outlining exactly how women can help avoid war, including burning all the women's colleges to the ground, avoiding marriage altogether, and setting up their own societies. It is radical, but absolutely rational. And of course, Wolf's prose is always worth reading. In the next episode, we are stepping back into medieval France and listening to the words of Christine de Pizan, considered the first woman to write professionally, and, as Simone de Beauvoir notes, perhaps the first woman to pick up a pen in defense of her sex. The book of the City of Ladies is surreal, beautiful, and macabre. It is a fantastic read for all fans of history, symbolism, and religious weirdness. You can subscribe to the Feral Culture Lab newsletter, learn more about the other podcasts and films currently being developed, 
read through the blog or connect with the social media accounts at feralculturelab.com. 